0: Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we would love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in, where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Well, Father, we thank you for the advance of your kingdom, the advance of your word, and particularly through church plants. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you promised that you would build your church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it and that we see that in celebrating these two churches today and so we thank you for Doxa Church in Mexico City and we thank you for Pastor Eli and Liz and we, we thank you for the the witness that you have planted in that place and pray that that these four years would just be the beginning of a long consistent ministry of the gospel in that city and we pray for Joy Community Fellowship and for Ben and Lindsay and pray that that today um, that you would encourage their hearts as they rest this evening and that you would um, begin, that this would just be the beginning of the seeds of the gospel being planted there and that the a church would grow from it. And so we, we celebrate these two churches and your work in them. And now as we open your word together and turn to your word together, we lift this time to you and ask that you'd speak to us as well. Move by your spirit and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, it has been quite a week in D.C., um, which I feel like I could say most Sundays now. <laughs> um, we, you know what's amazing is that things like impeachment proceedings and votes and presidential primaries and whatever happened out in Iowa and debates that have been going on all week and, um, and you know that I spent a few days this week in Chicago area at a theology conference and it is amazing how little any of those things were talked about. Um, and so, at times, the things that are obsessed over in this town, we forget that, that the news cycle, that it has always been tiring, but the churn just seems to be in an ever-increasing frenzy, and it demands our attention at every turn, right? That it, it feels like we're constantly being blitzed with the message that is screaming, this is the most important thing in the world ever. World history is going to be changed by this. And... It's not that things aren't important, but sometimes it's good to have some perspective. And each Sunday, that's part of my hope and what we do here together, is that we get to gather together and have a reset point, to, have, to be reminded of greater realities to, to, and more lasting truths, and to be reminded that, that the glory of man is like grass and, the flowers of the, and like the flowers of the field, and the grass withers and the flower fades and the word of the Lord stands forever. And so today, we're going to continue our walk through the book of Romans together. If you have a Bible, you can turn it to Romans chapter 2 with me. We'll be in Romans 2 today. And as we're working through Romans, the first few chapters of Romans are a little tough to read, um, if you've been with us through this journey, then you, you realize that. Like, we're working through some difficult things. And, and the breath of, of fresh air and hope and life is coming toward the end of chapter three. But, but these tough things are important to work through, they're foundational for us. And so we're going to continue to walk through them together. In Romans so far, the Apostle Paul introduced himself, and then he said that he was eager to get to Rome to preach the gospel. And that he was eager to get there because he's not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes in it. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith and because the wrath of God is being revealed. And so we've seen over the last couple of weeks that when God's wrath is revealed in us... Most often, that doesn't look like what we think of, but it actually looks like God turning us over to the things we desire. And so it's him saying, go and pursue whatever it is that your heart is set on and giving us to those things. We saw last week that that leads us to twisted sex, twisted um, mindsets, and twisted religion. Well, the next couple of chapters expand that third one and how our systems of faith and religion get twisted up And today, what we see is that we're all without excuse, that God is not partial or doesn't show favoritism to anybody. And ultimately today, the theme of the passage is a tough one for us. It's a heavy one because the theme is that the secret is out, that the reality of who we are is going to be exposed in the end. And so we're going to look at this today in Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. And so at the beginning of chapter 2, we've read... In end of chapter 1 we read that, that God, God's word is saying and the apostle Paul is saying hey there are things that God turns us over to these twisted things and then he says now there's no excuse on you who judge people because you do this very same things and, or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience do you, have you forgotten or do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance and then we see this contrast in verse 5 but because of your hard and impenitent heart you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is a heavy text for us, right? Because again, like we've seen already, none of us goes untouched by this. That, that Paul balances out two sides of this, saying, hey, some of you have a background in God's word, a background in scripture, a background in faith, and you're without excuse, and you're going to face God in judgment in the end. And some of you don't have any background in scripture and in God's word and in faith, and guess what? You also will face God in the end. And so the, the themes here, the big ideas of these two paragraphs that we just read, the first one is that God shows no partiality. Every one of us will stand before him in the end. And then the second, that the secrets, our secrets, will all be revealed. So five observations today about judgment, that the secret is out. And so the first observation is that we will all face judgment in the end. Every one of us will have to answer for the things that we have done. We see this other places in Scripture. So Revelation 20 is the most final presentation of this. And in Revelation 20, we read about the end of all things and that, that there is a place that Satan is thrown into the lake of fire where, there will be, where they will be tormented night and night and day forever and ever. And then in Revelation 20, it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no, no place was found for them. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. But then it goes on to describe the new heaven and the new earth as God's presence came to dwell with his people. And so this this is the image that every person in human existence will face God in the end and face him as judge to evaluate our lives, the good and the bad. Charles Octavius Booth, who... Um, was the founder of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. Um, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church is a well-known church in Montgomery, Alabama. It's, it's probably most well-known because that's the church that Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., was the pastor of as he rose to prominence. Well, that church was planted by Charles Octavius Booth. And he wrote a book, this little book, that's called Plain Theology for Plain People that's just a brilliant little primer on theology. But he, in reflecting on, on judgment... Um, Charles Booth said this, "'What trembling shall take the world in that day "'on the one side, and what triumph and joy "'shall be on the other? "'What disappointments, what separations, "'what losses, what bitter memories, "'what self-accusations, what heartrending regrets, "'what despair and remorse shall be seen in that day? "'Many would, if they could, flee to the dens "'and caves of the earth to hide from the face "'of the Lamb, whose love they have rejected.'" And so, when we look toward this, it's, this is something that I think is difficult for us to, to get our minds wrapped around, to understand in its fullness, is looking ahead toward the reality of judgment in the end. And, and it can be a terrifying thing. Um, when I was in, like, middle school, so when I was, I don't know, 11, 12 years old, is was when my family kind of started going to church, and not a, not a lot of churches that, at least not ones that I'm in, maybe you guys have been in churches like this, but, but we had a Sunday morning services, and then they had a Sunday night service, but not like our 5 p.m., which is really another service of the church. Have you ever been to a traditional Sunday night service in this mold? And so this was more like, for our, in, our, in our church, it meant like our pastor had a 12-string guitar out, and... And we sang some praise choruses there, or sometimes they do like hymns sings, where people could choose hymns and out of the book or whatever we do. But then I'll never forget one of, the, one of the first memories I have of going to this thing. Um, I also remember one night like forgetting my shoes, which is a parent now I can't comprehend, but looking at my kids, I can imagine it happening. And like Simon, I can imagine Simon showing up and go, I don't have my shoes. And my parents did what I would do. They said, well, you can step inside. Moses didn't have his shoes and you're stepping onto holy ground. And so they made me go into the church. And it may have been that night that they showed this video that was called The Thief in the Night. Have any of you ever seen that? All right, none in the 5 p.m. I wouldn't go see it. (laughs) What I remember, I was Terrified. Because I remember this scene where all I can remember, maybe this wasn't even the video, maybe this is just what came up in my subconscious later, but I can remember a scene where it was about the end times, and I can remember a scene where there was this old, like, grandfather figure in a farmhouse, and and him sitting down to breakfast over, like, oatmeal or cereal or whatever it was on the plate, and it pans away, and when it pans back, all that was left was a pile of clothes and his watch and wedding ring. I remember just going, oh, no. And the number of times that I would, like, show up home from school and my parents would be there and I would go, the rapture happened and I was left. (laughs) And, like, scarred. And I can remember thinking about Judgment Day and, and this kind of a passage, like what we have in front of us, that everything in our lives will be exposed, even the secrets of our lives. And in my head, the way that I imagined that as a kid was I pictured all people from human history filling a massive stadium and watching a movie of my life. And I can remember being horrified about that and what others might see and the mistakes I made and how embarrassed I would be and, 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 and just think I can remember like asking about that and asking my youth pastor at the time about that and just saying like, hey, I, maybe I got this wrong, but I thought you said that like Jesus paid for my sins and that God would, would, that he would remember them no more. So why do I have to see them again at the end? And I can remember that the youth pastor, I, telling, I had telling me one time that, that he, the way he pictured it was that there were, you know, the big piles of the good and the bad we've done. And then the real judgment for Christians, because the bad pile was taken away, was that we would see the pile of what could have been done if we'd been better. I've never seen that verse, (laughs) thanks be to God. (laughs) That is the, the harshest moralistic approach to Christianity I can imagine. And I don't think it's helpful here. And I was terrified, and that probably kept me from outwardly doing some things that I otherwise would have done, like moments of going like, nobody's here, but there is gonna be that video screen. But as far as restraining the passions of my heart, and shaping me as someone who loves God and is shaped to look and like and reflect him, like toxic shame and, and toxic guilt may limit some indulgence outwardly, but they will destroy our souls. And, and yet... There's also this, the reality of passages like this, that we will somehow be judged in the end, and, in our, and what we have done matters to God. Those who are in Christ, those who are not. Those who are religious, those who are not. Every one of us, what we have done, we will answer for it, and somehow it matters. And so we will face judgment in the end, every one of us. So let's try to work this through together with the time that we have today. The second observation here is that all of our secrets will be revealed. And that includes actions. And so, you know, in verse 6 of of chapter 2, it says, He will render, God will render to each one according to his works. And then it tells us, those who, so there's two options, right? Do good, so those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and don't obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there'll be wrath and fury. And so do good and seek God's glory and immortality, and, and you'll have life. If you're self-seeking and don't obey the truth, then it'll lead to God's wrath and fury. So these are the two options, it seems. And, and so God's judgment somehow includes our actions, but it's also not limited to our actions in this passage, is it? Do you, do you remember how it started in verse 5? Look at verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And so it does talk about our outward actions, but ultimately it comes back to our hearts, which is consistent with the rest of this passage. And we know that. Back in in, in verse 21, although they knew God, they didn't honor God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking. And And so our actions, what we've seen all the way through this passage in Romans 1 is that God's judgment is in turning, wrath comes in, his judgment comes in turning us over to the desires of our hearts, and it's our hard-heartedness that ha- it results in the symptoms of sin, and so ultimately here, though, it's a lack of gratitude and worship, and this is important, and Jesus talks about this similarly. He talks about trees bearing fruit, and it's by fruit that you will know a tree, this has always been, for me, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, maybe, you, maybe some of you are like arborists and you can look at a tree and see the leaf shape and say, this tree has this fruit. I cannot, but I can look at a tree that has lemons on it and say, oh, that must be a lemon tree. <laughs> that one has apples. It's a different tree than the lemon tree. And when you pick them, if a leaf stays with the fruit, then I could tell you the difference of the leaves. But it's the fruit that helps us to know the tree. Now, the fruit doesn't give life to the tree. The fruit is ultimately a cast off of the tree, but it, it's, it's what it produces. A healthy tree, it gets its life from its root system. And then it will, and if it's healthy, it will bear the fruit that it's made to bear. So Jesus says, does not say you'll know a tree by its fruit? And that's the indication of the thing, our lives will show the fruit of what's happening within us. And so the, he talks in these same terms. And, and one of the things that's hard for us to wrestle with, with this idea, I mean, I think just the language that our secrets will be revealed indicates to us that there's something more here than just outward actions, that it is an issue of the heart. Because the secret things aren't always things that we do outwardly. But the secret things are what goes on within us. And it's things that may, we might do outwardly, but it's stuff that we do when nobody else is watching. This is the definition of integrity, right? It's doing the right thing when no one else is watching but we don't always do that. And let's face it, when we think that no one's watching, we do whatever we want. Another thing that's difficult within this is that, that biblically, there's a concept that there are degrees of punishment and degrees of glory in the end. And we, we honestly, we don't know how all of that works itself out, but it is clear in Scripture that somehow what we do in this life matters. This is one of the big themes in the book of Job, Job is a, a difficult book to interpret and to work your way through, and there's a little bit of narrative and a whole lot of poetry. His friends go, kind of go after Job, and he responds, and, and it's hard to navigate through it all, but, but it shows us a lot about who God is, and it peels the curtain back on this, this it, it almost feels like a cosmic bet, doesn't it? That Satan comes to God and says, hey, nobody will just worship you because of who you are, and he says, well, have you thought about Job? He's righteous. You should go after him, just don't take his life. Job had no idea that happened, and his life got devastated by Satan. And so it shows us something about suffering that we don't always know the source of suffering. And I think Job's friends show us different angles where we try to explain away suffering. And and so it shows us we, we just don't know. And sometimes we can do real damage by theologizing our way through, telling somebody why their suffering is happening. But I think one of the big things that Job shows us is that God cares about our actions. He's not just distant and aloof and removed. What we do matters to him. And and what we do in this life matters. And, And within that, that means that in eternity, it's going to have an impact in eternity somehow in the end. In Matthew 11, Jesus talks about this. He's talking to his disciples and he was talking to them on the, on the western and northwestern coast or shore of the Sea of Galilee. And, and so as he was there, he started talking about the cities where most of his public ministry happened. And in Matthew 11, it says, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And so even with Jesus, God incarnate, performing miracles in these places, people still wouldn't accept him and turn to him. And so Jesus said, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. He's saying there's a degree of judgment that that the people in these places will face. And you, Capernaum, will, will you be exalted to, the, to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And so this passage, I mean, it shows us a few things. Um, I heard um, Dr. Don Carson speak on this, and he said, well, it shows us that Three things. that First, that God has contingent knowledge. That God knew what would have happened. Jesus knew what would have happened if he had been in Sodom and done these things. If he had been in Tyre and Sidon and done these things versus in these cities. And so he, God knows all possibilities as well as the realities. And second, it shows us that God takes into degree, into account degrees of responsibility for each person. That somehow we will be held to account for the things that we know. And then that there are degrees of punishment and judgment. It doesn't reverse the status, but somehow it influences eternity. And so this is something we have to wrestle with, that every one of us is going to stand before God, and every one of us will have our secrets revealed in his face. And maybe you aren't trapped in fear of judgment like I was in middle school, maybe because you're free from that. You feel like, well, I know that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, and so at times, maybe you're already jumping to the hopeful side of this, but, but we also need to hear that every Christian will face God in the end. And that gets to the point. It's observation three. God shows no partiality in judgment. Every one of us will face him in the end. So this is what it says, that, that we're going to be evaluated for what we do and there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. And there will be glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Why? Verse 11, for God shows no partiality. This language of partiality is favoritism. It shows up in James, it shows up in other places in the New Testament, but it was almost certainly coined by the New Testament. And so this was language that was used, that was, that was used explicitly by the apostles as they were writing into the church setting, because what they were saying is that, that there were all kinds of divides that existed in Rome the same way that there are all kinds of divides that exist now in D.C., they were divided by ethnicity, and he was saying, hey, Jewish or Greek, this is the same for everybody. They were divided by gender. Men and women had different rights and different, different access and different privileges. They were divided by religions. They were divided by social and economic strata. And so what Paul is saying here is what, whoever you are, when we come to before God as our judge, we are human beings, and the ground is leveled. And the things that we might use to prop ourselves up or the things we use to push others down, those things get obliterated and we stand in the same place and each one of us will give an account before God. And so it goes on then to say each one of us will give an account for the information that we have. And so in verse 12, all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. All who have sinned with it will be judged by the law. And then do you see in verse 13, no, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And so he's saying, for the religious, you're going to give an account for the, for the information that you have. If you have God's word, he's saying to the Jewish people here who are pious, who, I mean, Paul at points lists his credentials and he's, you know, in in Philippians where he says, you know, I am of the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm a Pharisee. I was zealous above above all else in my faith. And he he gives his credentials to line up how, how holy he was by the religious system. And then he ends up saying all of it is nothing and I would throw it all away to know Christ. But here to the religious, so he's one that's qualified to speak this way to the religious people in the context in Rome. And he says, for you, if you've had God's law, if you've had his word, if you have the prophets, if you have all of the anticipation for what he would do in Christ, then you need to hear that all of that information will be held as part of the standard when you face God in judgment. It's really, I mean, what he's giving them here is the Spider-Man principle. As Uncle Ben said, with great power comes great responsibility. And this really gets driven home over the next couple of chapters. And, and we need to hear this. If, you're, if you grew up in the church, you need to hear this, Especially. Because the most religious of people are just as in need of a Savior and too often get blinded to their need. Because if you grew up in church, that means you've grown up with God's Word. You've grown up knowing the Bible's stories. You've grown up with a proximity to religious things, knowing songs that you could sing and with a background in all of this information about who God is and what he's done. And you're surrounded by people who love you and love God. And, and we need, if you've grown up in the church, you need to be careful not to let your proximity to holy things dull your senses to your own need for salvation. That, that th- To dull your senses to how rebellious your own heart is standing against God or to the awesome holiness of God. If, if you have, have allowed your religious practice to bring you to a point that you no longer need to rely on Christ every day, and let's, let's face it, I mean, this is true of me the number of times I realize that when I'm going through something hard and I find my prayer life being something along the lines of like, God, why are you letting this happen? You know, I thought I had things figured out. Like, why is it that every time you feel like you're making some ground financially, like something massive and catastrophic breaks? Why well, you can't, can't, can't we just get ahead on this? Well, you know, you, something happens and you end up in surgery for a 20-year-old injury, hypothetically. You have to sit down in a red leather chair to preach. <laughs> I'm so ready to stand up. I'm tempted to be able to say, God, why are you letting this happen? Don't you see all the things that I'm doing? Can't you make this easier for me? And the number of times that I realize that what I'm actually doing is asking God to get me to a point where I no longer need to depend on him. If we get to that point, that we don't need to depend on Christ anymore then that's gonna, that means we can cut out our hearts and, and be self-reliant and it might show actually that we know a lot about God without knowing God for the irreligious if, you're, if you haven't grown up in the church then Paul has a word for you here too if you have no background in the church, he anticipates the question here that I think meant a lot of us struggle with, about what about those who have never heard? What about those who don't have the Bible? What about those who don't have the stories? What about those who haven't heard this good news? What happens there? And do you see what he says in verse 14? When the Gentiles who don't have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they're a law unto themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And so this is back to what Paul said in chapter 1, that creation itself cries out about the character of God, about his eternal character, and about we can see his majesty and power. And so he's saying every one of us has a conscience within us given to us by God, and that conscience itself can become a law for us. Now, when we hear that, I think most of us can start to feel kind of good, right? And say, like, Man, I, I kind of wish I didn't have all the information at least I don't violate my conscience but think about that Francis Schaeffer talked about this he, he somewhat famously he talked about an experiment a thought experiment of imagine that every little baby who was born ever, anywhere in the world had a tape recorder hung around its neck a tape recorder is this thing <laughs> <laughs> they would put a cassette with a magnetic tapes in spools and then it would record sound And so let's imagine that there was an iPhone (laughs) available for everybody with a constant voice memo happening. And this iPhone only recorded the moral judgments with which this child, as he grew, bound other people. The moral precepts might be much lower than the biblical law, but they would still be moral judgments. So just imagine for you that everything you've ever said, every moral judgment you've ever made was recorded. Eventually, each person comes to that great moment where they stand before God as judge. Suppose then that God simply touched play and each person would hear in your own words all those statements which you had bound other people in moral judgment. And you could hear it going on for years. This gets back to the movie clip thing. I'm like freaking out a little bit. (laughs) But thousands and thousands of moral judgments made against other people, not aesthetic judgments, but moral judgments. And what would God say in the end? He would simply say to the person, though they'd never heard the Bible, now, where do you stand in light of your own moral judgments? Well, Scripture tells us that every voice would be stilled, that every person would have to acknowledge that we have deliberately done things which we knew were wrong. Nobody could deny it. And so we sin two kinds of sin. We sin one kind, like when we trip off a curb and and it kind of takes us by surprise, and we sin a second kind of sin when we deliberately set ourselves up to fall. And no one can say that he does not sin in that second way. And Paul's comment here is not just theoretical and abstract, but addresses to the individual that any person without the Bible, as well as the person with the Bible, that God is completely just. And a person is judged and found wanting on the same basis on which they've tried to bind others. And so here, we are all left without excuse and that our secrets will be revealed and God shows no partiality in judgment. The fourth observation continues. God's righteousness, or his righteous wrath against sin is personal. Let me explain why this is important. We have a tendency to think of God's judgment in kind of impersonal, mechanistic terms that make it hard to grapple with. So we think God is kind of arm's length and it's, just in place and there's an objective almost like a punch card of how things are going to come out and so I think this is one of the weaknesses if you've ever read C.S. Lewis's perspectives and the depiction he has of hell and the great divorce which I think is incredibly helpful in a lot of ways it's not totally wrong but it's too limited and so C.S. Lewis has said things like hell starts as a grumble that goes on for eternity I think there's truth to that but it's not just removed and mechanistic that we need to be careful not to overlook the personal nature of god's judgment. and so when we read the old testament prophets do do you know the language that god uses about the sin and rebellion of his people through the prophets? well he looks at the covenant that he made with his people on mount sinai as a marriage covenant. And so the accusation he has against his people and the prophets is, you've cheated on me. You've committed spiritual adultery by chasing after false gods and lesser gods. There is nothing more, no more personal betrayal that we can imagine than a spouse cheating on a spouse. And that's the language that God uses of his people that have left him. And so we need to hear this because, again, we think of God as being distant and aloof and removed, but, but we need to hear that his wrath against sin is a function of a personal desire to defend his name and his glory. It's deeply personal. And we need to hear that every sin we have ever committed is an offense against him and his holiness. It's not just an offense against some objective force. It's that it's against God himself and often other people as well, but it's an offense against God that we need to be concerned with. And the degree of our worthiness for judgment isn't based on the degree of what we've intended in any specific act or thought, but it's the degree of the one we've sinned against. And so think of it this way. We know that this is true, that we can have the same intent and the same actions against different people, and that the outcomes and the impact will be very, very different. So let's say that after the last couple of weeks, you're like, I don't really like this pastor, and I'd like to let him know. And afterward, as I stepped down, you walked up and just decided to hit me, straight in the face. Now, first of all, it'd be kind of cowardly to hit a guy on crutches, (laughs) but... I mean, what's the real impact? Hopefully, because we're in the church, somebody would rally to help me and help me up. <laughs> um, and you know, we'd probably have a, have a talk about like, hey, we, we need to sit down together if you wanna come back on a Sunday and talk this through. But ultimately, there's not gonna be a huge impact in your life because of that event. Now, if you go do the same thing to your least favorite politician, if you're like, you know, I just don't like that senator and I'm going to go let them know about it and jacked him in the face. Or if you're like, you don't like this president and you went up and tried to hit him, the impact on your life would be very different. Why Is your action any different? No. It's the same action. It's the same motive. And so why is the penalty different? I mean, for me, there's, if you come and hit me, please don't, first of all. <laughs> But if you come and hit me tonight, it's not going to have that big of an impact on your life. If you go and try to attack a, you know, a, a senator or a president or a Supreme Court justice, that's going to change the scope of your life. Well, why? Because, because the person that you're attacking is in a higher position, so the consequences are more severe. We need to remember that when we're talking about a sin against God, this is the holy one, the perfect, the, the almighty creator of all things. And so we have a tendency to think of sin and, and put ourselves on a scale by looking at other human beings or the people we've sinned against and to think, that person probably deserved that anyway. Maybe they did, but what we don't realize is that when you're sinning against someone who bears the image and likeness of God, you are sinning against God himself. And so our offense is, is in light of his holiness. And I know we get squeamish and awkward with the doctrine of hell and judgment. It's hard for us to deal with, but I think that's too often because we have too light of a view of what sin is, and we have too light of a view of God's holiness. And what we need to understand is that, that understanding the gospel doesn't mean that you stop taking your sin seriously. And in fact if you really know Jesus and really get to know God, the closer you get to him, the more your own depravity is gonna be exposed. But the more we understand our own depravity and the more we understand the transcendence of God's holiness, the more beautiful the gospel becomes. And so we have, and this is the other thing, we have a tendency to look back and divide God between the Old and New Testaments and to say, well, the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath and I don't like him, and the God of the New Testament is warm and cozy, and nice. First, God can't be divided. God is who He is, and He can only be what He is. But second, have you read the New Testament? Did you hear what I just read out of Revelation 20 today? That was a tamer passage out of Revelation. There's a passage in Revelation that talks about God's wrath on earth as the winepress of God's wrath that destroys people and presses them until their blood rises to the level of horses' bridles. Now, even if that's metaphorical, that is a severe outpouring and Jesus upped the ante on the Old Testament that where he said, you know, you've heard it said, do not murder, which I think this is how most of us think about our sin and morality. We're like, well, I haven't murdered anybody this week. It's like, that is a very low bar. Like maybe, maybe we can move that a little bit. But Jesus ups the ante beyond what we can handle. He said, everyone who is angry or insults his brother is liable to hell and judgment. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And it's another one where we're like, well, at least I haven't cheated on anybody. Well, he, Jesus says everyone who looks lustfully has already committed adultery. So he says, if, you know, if something in your body causes you to sin, get rid of it. Pluck out your eye. Cut off your hand. It's better to lose a part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. The Old Testament judgment was purely, almost purely temporal. And so it was a war. It was a conquering nation. It was a famine. It was a plague. It was something limited. In the New Testament, that judgment is eternal. And it goes beyond our outward actions to our hearts. And I know it offends our sensibilities, but on the other hand, look at the world around us. Is this how things should be? I don't think any of us looks at what's happening around us and reads what's happening in global news and thinks, you know, this is fine. I think God should stay out of this thing. We are in a mess Humanity doesn't get better and better. Like we had those utopian views that turned the industrial revolution and we've realized by now that all we're doing is finding better ways to oppress and destroy each other. And so when we look around us and we see the deception and the oppression and violence and extortion and exploitation and war and rape and abuse, and, and do we just want God to let all of the wickedness of humanity go unpunished? He can't and he won't. Because it's damaging to human beings, yes, but not just because it damages those who bear his image and likeness, because our sin is an affront to the holiness and goodness of the one who created every one of us. And it should be a comfort to us that God won't let the wicked go unpunished, that they won't get away with it forever, that they will answer him in the end, and that, that, but we also need to know that our sin is first against God, and he takes it personally, and we'll face him in the end. So God's righteous wrath against sin is personal, but fifth observation tonight, and this is our final one. We will be judged in accordance with the gospel. Verse 16, let's, I mean, we need the fullness of verse 16 here, that on that day, when according to my gospel, so Paul says my gospel here the same way that we would say according to my, you know, he's raising the flag saying he's with Jesus. So according to the gospel, on that day, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. That's the standard. In Hebrews, it talks about this, where in Hebrews 9, it says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And can we just pause for a moment and realize that the verse could have stopped there. It's appointed for man to die once and then face judgment, but praise God that it goes on. Just as that is the case, and that we all face judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. In Acts 17, Paul talked about this in Athens and he said, listen, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. See, we need to understand that God's, we need to understand God's wrath because understanding God's wrath will help us to see the beauty of the cross. And if God has no wrath, if there isn't any wrath of God, then we don't need the cross. And see, this is, I think, part of the problem is that too often we have too light a view of sin, too light a view of God's holiness, and too light of a view of the need of Christ's sacrifice for us. You can grow up in the church or be around the church for long enough that you even get unimpressed with penal substitutionary atonement. Which is just a theological way to say that Jesus went in our place for our sin and took on the fullness of the wrath of God to give us his righteousness. And this is the amazing thing that in order to understand the good news of the gospel, it makes it what's so good, we need to understand what, what we're being saved from. We need to understand God's judgment. We need to understand that his wrath is right and just and that his judgment on all of humanity is coming and, and it will be right and just and that our sin is personal and that we've sinned against the one who will sit as our judge. But the crazy part of it all that makes no sense in human wisdom but is in the fullness of the wisdom of God is that the judge himself became human to pay our penalty so that we are declared righteous in him. The one we sinned against has come and made it right for us and he's the only one that could because only God is perfectly holy and no one else could pay the price it would take to redeem us. That Because God is the only judge and no one else could declare us righteous. And that's what's given to us freely in Jesus Christ. And so today's text is a heavy one. It is a fearful one. And we need to be careful to read the texts that are more difficult for us because, because if we turn too quickly to resurrection and hope all the time without seeing what we face then, then we, we won't feel the weight of the reality of what God has done, and it won't, it, it won't, we won't see the beauty of it. But what we see clearly today is that every one of us will face judgment in the end. And the more we know, the more we've been given, the more we'll be held responsible for. And in that day, we'll have to choose. When you stand before God, the, the ultimate righteous judge, you'll have to choose now. Or are you going to try to stand as your own defense attorney, pleading your case, working to prove that you're righteous, working to prove that you haven't sinned against a holy God? Because what's been offered to us is that, that Christ has been appointed the judge. God proved that by raising him from the dead. That's what it said in Acts 17. And so as you stand before him, what's been offered to us is that we can stand in the righteousness of Christ at great cost to the Savior, our Savior, but freely given to us, and that the Judge Himself becomes your defense attorney? And so, in that passage that we read out of Matthew today, where Jesus was saying, "Woe to you, to all these cities, to Chorazin and Bethsaida, and because Tyre and Sidon have it better than you, and woe to you, Capernaum, because if the mighty works done in you would have been done in Sodom, they would have, it would have remained. But I tell you, it'll be worse for you than." Or be more tolerable for you on the day of judgment for Sodom than for you. In the middle of all of that talk of judgment, Jesus went on the next verse to say this. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. See, we are in the midst of a chaotic and divided city and a chaotic and divided world, and, and it, where it seems like the unjust and the wicked just seem to win and prosper. And everything around us demands our attention and our immediacy. It's a crisis that we need to focus on, it's a grind. But you can find rest tonight. You can find rest for your weary soul. In, in Christ, you've been declared righteous. In Christ, turn to him in repentance and walk away from your own self-righteousness and your debt has been paid. In Christ, your bond has been delivered. In Christ, your soul is set free from bondage to sin. In Christ, you are freed to live in righteousness. And in Christ, you have nothing to fear on judgment day because Jesus is calling every one of us here to repent and turn to him. But then we can finally rest and know that if our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, that we have nothing to fear on Judgment Day. Yeah, the secrets will be revealed, but, but we've all been outed by the cross. That there is nothing we can do to earn our salvation. And so we'll be able to stand in the righteousness of Christ and be welcomed into his presence and glory for eternity. And so Judgment Day is nothing to fear but, it's what, but having Christ give us rest is what frees us to live in light of his righteousness. Let's pray. Father, would you work in our hearts to free us from fear, give us a spirit not of fear, but of, of self-control and boldness and a willingness to, to follow your calling even when it's hard. I pray tonight that you would help us to feel the weight and the difficulty of coming judgment, not just so we can be afraid and have, have nightmares of what might be, or although if that's what you use, then so be it, but that, that we might actually turn and find freedom in Jesus. And so by your Spirit, would you give us the boldness to repent, the boldness to trust in him. Thank you that there's hope for us so that when we stand before you in the end, We might not stand before you as simply a fearful judge where we rightly are under your wrath, but that we can turn to you as a loving father because the way has been made through Jesus. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.